0: Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Charlotte, Craven, Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And this week, we are going to dive in a different series. Again, and I mean, you're probably thinking, man, can't you guys just stick with one and finish it? Well, I would, but we're having, we're having a problem. It's a good type of problem. It's the one where we are so busy and Michael needs to prepare and travel and speak to a whole bunch of people and we don't have time to record a new episode. <laughs> Fortunately, I've gone back into our archives, and we did find a recording from a very popular series that is back by Demand. Michael actually taught on this recently, and it's his whole lesson on Jonah. This is a nine-lesson series, so we have the full series recorded. So the next nine sessions will be one fully complete series, and there is much rejoicing. Um, there is also a PowerPoint worksheet that will go with this. So as always, you can check out the website for that. It might not be ready by the time I post this first one, but it will be coming, and I'll be posting that on all our social medias and on our newsletter. So if you're not on those yet, um, you can go ahead and find us there or sign up to, on the newsletter on our website, evidenceforfaith.org. As always, you can directly support this broadcast and keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org give. And with that, here is Michael Lane and the first session of Jonah.
1: Well, we're going to try this. We're recording now, I think. The lights on. So we'll see how that works and stuff. Well, thank you for braving the cold and coming out tonight um, to get some spiritual feeding here. If you haven't had supper yet, that's on your own. But uh, (laughs) spiritual feeding, we'll do here tonight. We'll have that. And as you see, we're starting a brand new series. Um, This is Jonah. We're going to look at the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a really interesting book because if you go to some major atheist websites... On the computer, some of their their top websites for a lot of atheistic stuff, they cite the Book of Jonah as like one of the the uh, key reasons for not believing in the Bible. And I remember years ago I was looking up some sites like this because I had some students that I used to teach were, uh, you know, atheists and stuff. They said in the classroom, and so I remember going and looking up things and that they would give me sites and things, and I was like, Whoa, Jonah, huh? Of all the books. Of all the books in the Bible, they pick Jonah, and there's specifically one verse in the book of Jonah that they always cite. You know, Jonah and the great fish comes up, swallows Jonah. They, they say right there, that's, that's enough reason not to believe the Bible. Well, we're going to look at that um, as we go through this series, too. I'm going to propose some different ideas to you. Um, but this is a book that it, it's, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. For one, it's short. It's one of these we can sit and you can read a book of the Bible in just a short period of time, and like you know, I, I at Fort Wilderness, and plus when I used to be a youth group director and and years teaching in the school, people would say, "I just don't have time to read the Bible." Don't have time to read the Bible. You can read an entire book of the Bible. Some of these books are so short. I mean, the Book of Obadiah, you could read the Book of Obadiah during a commercial break on TV, especially if you're watching Channel WGN, because those channels have really long commercial breaks but you probably get through the book of Psalms and some of those uh, but you can definitely read through Jonah pretty quick too because it's only four short chapters it's very fast-moving it's a really interesting book tonight we're just going to get into believe it or not just the first three verses pretty much but I thought probably the best thing that we should do tonight would be let's just read through the book first that won't take that much time but I think because um, some people probably have never read the whole book and if we're going to be talking about it and learning about it, I thought that should be the, the area where we start. So let's begin by just reading through the book of Jonah. And I love this, this stand that my Bible's on. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> I have to hold, hold this. So what's happening is this, my Bible is too... Too heavy for the the stand that we have it's shrinking down but we're gonna go through the book of Jonah um, let's open in prayer first then we'll dive right in this and then we'll take a look at the um, the first three verses in particular father we do thank you so much for this time that we can have that we can come together as a member of your family Lord and just open up your word and let your your spirit speak to us there is power in your word Your word is true and Lord this is a book that is often ridiculed as being a false book but Lord help us to see things and help us to understand what is going on with this missionary named Jonah as we explore this and we just ask that your spirit would just speak to our hearts open up our minds and just teach us something Lord we ask in Jesus name amen so the book of Jonah starting in the first verse I guess I'll just pick up my Bible. It's easier that way. And you can follow along. Now, I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Um, you might have different translation. Um, those of you who have listened to me for many years, you know I'm a, I am love the English Standard Version because it's a, a word-for-word translation. So, um, and it's written on a lower reading level so people can understand it. So let's take a look, Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Then they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this young man's life and lay not on us his innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done it as it please you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bar closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you're a generous God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster therefore now Lord please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live and the Lord said you do well to be angry (laughs) Jonah went out of the city sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered when the sun rose which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So there's the book of Jonah. Wow, we just read a whole book in the Bible. That's amazing. I mean, some people are like, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it covers a lot of stuff. It is an interesting book. If you've never read through the whole book, you've, uh, maybe this, some things in here sort of caught you, like, "Wow, well, I never saw that before. There are some fascinating things here um, in this book. And then tonight, what we're going to take a look at is a little bit of an introduction. And, I mean, let's face it. Doesn't Jonah have a bad rap with people? I mean, all, all of us in, in the churches today, we always say Jonah. I mean, if you were to name somebody Jonah, would you consider that a compliment? Like you, Jonah. You know, in sailing days, back in uh, like the British Navy, the uh, early days of the American Navy and stuff, uh, during that time period, if there was like somebody who was thought to be a curse on a ship, they called them a Jonah. And ships would be cursed and stuff, and they would sometimes rise up and kill the sailor. Sailors were somewhat superstitious. I'm talking even in the 1800s, not that long ago, they would call somebody a Jonah. Um, being called a Jonah is generally not something that is a compliment. I, for the life of me, I can't remember one person I've ever met whose name was Jonah. Does anybody know anybody who named that? You do? You got some friends that are Jonah? Yeah. Actually, I mean, there's good things and bad things about this guy, but he does have sort of a rap. And what do we always think about? Oh, God told him to go do something. I mean, the guy's a missionary, and he goes the opposite direction. He totally disobeys God. Ooh, when we give him a hard time for that. Well, let's take a look at the first three verses here. This is as far as we're going to get tonight in just looking at this. But these first three verses, we're going to find out a lot about this guy named Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So, there is our introduction, basically, of this missionary, because he is a missionary. He's also a prophet of God. So who is Jonah? Who is Jonah? Well, he is, like I say, he's a prophet of God. Now, this is not the only place in the Old Testament where we come across Jonah. Um, yes, he wrote this book, but there, he is mentioned specifically in another passage in another book. Um, it says that he is from Gath Heifer. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, 2 Kings. So, this is a historical book, and it gives us a story, and it mentions Jonah, the prophet of God, who was from Gath Heifer. Now, a lot of people wonder, never even heard of Gath Heifer. Where in the world is Gath Heifer? Well, it just so happens it is really close to what is, in, during the New Testament times, the city of Nazareth. Now, who do we know who comes from Nazareth? Jesus. Exactly, Jesus. But here's the passage. 2 Kings 14.25, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, here you are, and it, see, it's the same guy, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hepher. So we are given this information um, about this prophet in a different book. I, I find this book, and if you've seen the advertisements advertising this class, I'm going to be talking about the, the Christological Um, significance of this book and the parallels. What I'm going to be showing you in the next few lessons as we go through this, there is a lot of parallelism between Jonah, believe it or not, and Jesus, the Messiah. There's a lot And a lot of people wonder, like, what's the purpose of this book and everything like that? Actually, the purpose of the book, one of the key verses, no, it's not the one, and the great fish, the Lord caused the great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That is not necessarily like the key verse. Uh, The key verse comes at the end of chapter two, I believe, where Jonah is praying after he's inside the fish, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is actually a book of salvation, it really is, and I'm going to show that to you because it's a remarkable passage. Now, no doubt, many of you are familiar with another Old Testament book by the name of Ruth. Beautiful, another four-chapter book, beautiful story, love story. It's a phenomenal thing, and it's often used in sermons to correlate um, taking Boaz, the character there, and showing how Boaz is the kinsman-redeemer, and we use that as Jesus being the kinsman-redeemer. This book also has Christological, meaning christ Parallel parallelism inside of this book. There's quite a bit of it, actually, as we're going to get into. So Gath Heifer, that's where this guy is from. And at the time of Jonah, Nazareth doesn't exist. Nazareth did not come into play from recent archaeological discoveries just this past year. Uh, as they've been digging uh, this last summer in and around Nazareth, they have found more evidence that it's really a um, a, ta- a city that didn't exist even 200 BC. It came in right around 100 BC. And it was, a, I've been there. Um, it's a dinky little thing. The entire city of Nazareth basically today sits under a church. There's a huge Roman Catholic church there, gigantic. If you go inside um, if you go inside, there's like little caves all around. And the, the Jews uh, the, that were living back at the time of Christ were living in caves. So get out of your mind that during the Christmas story when G, uh, Mary and Joseph are up and they're living in a nice little townhouse or something with a you know pool and a courtyard. No, these were little caves that they lived in. And there's one tradition says was prob- uh, could have been the house of Mary and Joseph, and that's why they built that church there. But... Recent archaeological evidence shows that that cave that they're talking about there actually is part of an ancient synagogue. Um, that it wasn't that cave, but it's no one knows what cave it was. There's a bunch of them all around, and um, I even went inside one of these little caves. I was given uh, permission to go inside. I took some photographs and and stuff inside the cave. Remember when we were there? And did you go inside when you were? I, yeah. You climb climb down inside the thing. Yeah. It's really cramped little thing. Well, Gath Hepper is very close to where Nazareth eventually is going to come from, or come up to be. So that's where this is at. To give you an idea on a map, I'm showing you a map here of uh, Palestine at the time of Christ. And you have this, uh, yeah, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is up here. So Jesus of Galilee, as he's often called, you can see where Nazareth is right over here, uh, about 10 miles or so from the Sea of Galilee. Um, and if you go just a little bit up, this is a very, very hilly area. Very beautiful rolling hills, valleys in between, very fertile. Uh, Canaan is just a little bit to the north, uh, just maybe about two miles or so to the north. Um, and Gath Hefer uh, was just in that same area. In between Nazareth and Canaan was just just on the outskirts of Nazareth. So showing you a picture, this is the area. Gath Heifer has never been uh, excavated. We're not absolutely sure. Archaeologists are not 100% sure where it's at. But from ancient writings and stuff, we know it's somewhere in this, probably this valley area here. So this is, I'm taking a picture here. This is very close to Nazareth. And taking a picture just a little bit to the north and just that area right in there. Somewhere in there is where this was. But just giving you an idea of the landscape, you can see it's very mountainous-like in the back. But we're in a beautiful valley. This is where Jonah is from. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom. Now, that's important to know, too. If I go back to the map a second, um, let's see. I want to go back. I'm going to go back this way. Oh, that's going forward. There we go. If we go back, if you'll recall, at the time of Jonah now, the book of 2 Kings, where we get this reference, the nation of Israel has been divided. There's the David monarchy called Judah, to the south so it's down in this area down in here the northern ten tribes are all were up in here so this is up in the galilee area so actually jonah is a prophet from galilee do you recall one time we talked about this in the study of john if you were here for that we talked about this Do you remember jesus one time being accused by the pharisees about being a prophet and the pharisees I believe it was Nicodemus made some comment and they said to Nicodemus, the uh, Caiaphas probably said to him, um, check for yourself, when has there ever been a prophet come from Galilee? Do you remember that? There was one. Of course, these people who were doing this with Jesus were Sadducees. Sadducees didn't take the Old Testament um, later books, the books of history and stuff, and and use them. They ignored them. Um, They didn't say that they were word of God and stuff. But yes, there's definitely a prophet from Galilee in the Old Testament, and it was Jonah. I just find it so fascinating that he's from the same place, roughly, that Jesus grew up and walked around and played in, the same area. So, that's where this is at. So, um, gives you a location a little bit. So, he's a prophet for the northern tribes for the kingdom of Israel. And if you recall, if you've studied uh, and read the books of 1 and 2 Kings, Judah, The kingdom of Judah stayed pretty much close with david but the northern tribes you know they went against david and they basically had one bad king after another they always were walking away from god they worshiped many idols jeroboam the first was their first king who rebelled against rehoboam the son of solomon and he introduced idol worship and it just went rampant after him till you get to ahab who was really into it with jezebel and others That was the area where Jonah was at. He was in the country that was really into idol worship. So, you need to understand a little bit of the background of this guy as we explore where he's from and what he was doing as a prophet. So, to give you an idea now, when he worked, Jonah worked, he was a prophet of God during the reign. Of King Jeroboam we get that from that passage in Kings uh, in 2nd Kings so we know when Jeroboam basically lived Jeroboam was King around 793 to 753 BC this is Jeroboam the second not Jeroboam the first but Jeroboam the second the first was um, just after Solomon's death. So this is the span of time we see right here. Now, using a little bit of world history with you, or ancient history, to show you what's going on, here was David. Here's the divided kingdom at the time of uh, the end of Solomon's reign. Rehoboam becomes king. The kingdom, uh, Jeroboam the I, leads the coup. The kingdom splits. So Jonah is up in this area with the northern uh, tribes of Israel, and he is a prophet there during this time period. This is before the massive Assyrian conquest that came in 722 and destroyed all of the northern kingdom and removed the 10 tribes in the north and scattered them to their today lost, are called still the 10 lost tribes of Israel. The Assyrians did that in 722. Now this I found fascinating to see where Jonah is right before that. You can see the time frame. Jonah is living in here. Uh, this is only about a 30-year span between here and here, when Jonah was living. Um, So within 30 years, the Assyrians destroyed the country that Jonah comes from. The Assyrians absolutely destroyed Israel. Um, And that was Sennacherib who did most of the Um, the most thorough job, but there were some others, too, that were mentioned. But that's where he uh, falls in in the time frame, to give you an idea. So it's actually very close to the end of the northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of Ephraim. It's right towards the end of that kingdom, and that kingdom has never come back since then. So Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, it tells us in the Bible, if you look at the passages in 2 Kings... He is constantly fighting the Syrians. They're called at that time Arameans. They are what we would call the Syrians. And he was constantly fighting them. They were trying to take over his land. He's fighting them. Um, The Syrians were the people just to the north of Israel. The kingdom butting up next to theirs was the Syrians. And Israel today, if you go over to the Golan Heights, that's where Syria is today. Um, That border's still there. there are invaders coming down from Syria into, uh, into Israel and raiding quite commonly. Assyrians have been doing this, but also the, uh, not just the Assyrians, the Syrians were the big threat at the time of Jonah. They were the big threat. Um, also, what's happening to Assyria? Assyria, which is where Nineveh is found, Assyria at this time in ancient history has become a very weak nation. Now, they're about to take over the world, but at this point, the Assyrians, if you study Assyrian history, they were sort of nomadic and, and tribal like back around the time of David, and then they started organizing themselves. They became a very powerful kingdom very quickly. They rose up. At the height of their kingdom, it seemed like, all of a sudden, they fell internally. They weren't invaded from the outside. Their, in, their nation collapsed from within. And they sort of slumped down, and it's during this slump, that's when Jonah comes. Then 30 years later, they come up and they actually conquered much of the, um, the um, Middle East. They, they took almost everything the Assyrians did. So at the time of Jonah, though, and this is very important, I mean, this is really important to catch this time frame, because what I'm going to show you in the future, in some uh, future lesson here, why did the Assyrians' con- uh, uh, country, why did it collapse internally, has a lot to do with what's going on with God's timing with Jonah. God has appropriate times for everything. I mean, the Book of Ecclesiastes says this, but God does. He's not a God of random, he's a God of specifics, and he has this all timed out perfectly for when Jonah arrives. It is remarkable what you're gonna see, what historians have found happening in Nineveh when Jonah comes. It's it's a remarkable thing. But who were the people of Nineveh? I mean, we hear about Nineveh. Obviously, they were scary people. Because Jonah doesn't go there. I mean, what's his message? He's supposed to go there and tell them, hey, God's going to destroy you guys because you're evil. Now, would you like to be given that assignment to go into a country? By the way, this country is your enemy who has been invading your land, who has been killing and maiming people. And then God says, hey, I got a job for you. I want you to go to their capital and go yell at them and tell them I'm going to destroy them. That's where Jonah's like, hey, have we got a bad connection? You want me to go where? So let me show you a little bit of why Jonah went the opposite direction. Who are the people of Nineveh? The Assyrians. Not Syrians, the Assyrians. This is present-day Iraq. So, the Assyrians. Present-day Iraq, Nineveh was one of their capitals, um, and it was near, it's actually right across the river from what is today Mosul. A Lot of fighting going on there today. Um, Nineveh was actually erased from history. They didn't know where it was for many years, uh, back even in the 1700s, 1800s, even into the early eight, or later 1800s. Uh, critics thought that Nineveh was a mythical city, it didn't exist. Well, archaeologists found it, and you can gather from, this, from chapter four this is a big city. It says 120,000 uh, people who don't know their uh, left hand from their right. And what does that mean? I'll explain to you, too, as we go through this. But this is a big city, 120,000 people at that time in ancient history. That'd be like one of the largest cities in the world. Mm -hmm. And they have found it there. It's across the river from Moselle. They've been excavating it out. Then as ISIS came into power, a lot of that has been destroyed. The ISIS people have been going in and destroying a lot of uh, the remains of the city. But that's where it was. So to give you an idea, this is the Assyrian Empire at its height. Actually, this comes after Jonah. This was under Sennacherib, um, who was at the time of Hezekiah. Um, He comes, but this isn't so long after Jonah. But the Assyrians had come over. You can see, like, um, this would be Iran over here. This is Iraq. And um, Babylon, being right here, would later on become a capital of the uh, Chaldeans or the the, um, Babylonians, of course. Nineveh is way up to the north, as you see. It's way up here, and it's right on the Tigris River. Um, and I'll show you, show you some other things in future lessons about that, some of the excavation that's been done there. It's remarkable what they have found. But um, that's where the city was. Now, where is Jonah living? Gath hefer. Where was Gath heifer? Okay. Gath hefer is, here's the Sea of Galilee, just a little bit to the west of here. So this is where he was supposed to go. So he would have had to take these routes, the roads to go up this way to do this. Of course, he's gonna do the opposite. He's gonna go to Tarshish, which I'll show you, that's the opposite direction. But um, the Assyrians, what they had done is they, at, at the height of their empire, they conquered everything except, and there's a little gray circle right where Jerusalem is. They never conquered Jerusalem. It was the only defeat they ever had was Jerusalem. They conquered everything else, and they went in, they conquered Egypt. So this, when they came down and conquered the 10 northern tribes right 30 years after Jonah, they came all the way down, and they conquered all the way through here. They just did a remarkable job of killing everybody and taking over much of the world. Um, But that shows you the Assyrian Empire. And so they were constantly raiding. Now, remember, Jeroboam was fighting Damascus, is the capital of, of Syria, and so they were constantly fighting in here. Uh, Nineveh is way over here. So these people um, are quite a distance from where the Syrians, Jeroboam II is at war with the Syrians fighting in this area. Jonah is told, forget these guys, I want you to go over here. So that's a long distance to travel and stuff. Now, who are these Assyrians? Who was it God said, I want you to go tell them I'm going to destroy them? Let me give you a little background now of (laughs) the Assyrians. Historians tell us that they were probably the most evil culture that has ever existed in man's history. And that's quite a title to have that. How do they base that? Well, from archaeology, but also from writings, not just from writings outside of countries, but even the Assyrians, what they wrote about themselves. A lot of this has been excavated. I'll show you in a second where they've um, where some of this is taken. But they were, without a doubt one of the most if not the most cruel nation ever to come along Um, i'm going to show you some pictures here some reliefs um this one here is from biblical archaeology review um, magazine they they have this and it's showing these are people that the this is from a um an art an uh, artistic drawing they wrote the history on the walls uh, with pictures the egyptians wrote in letters you know, hieroglyphics. The Assyrians, they wrote with pictures a lot of times. And I'll show you pictures of that too here in a second. But um, they wrote, and you can see, these people have had their heads cut off. Here's a whole pile of heads just sitting here. So they executed people like that into presenting the heads to uh, some commander who's erased from this thing here. Um, they will eventually destroy the upper kingdom of Samaria, the kingdom of Israel. They will annihilate it um, and disperse the 10 tribes eventually. Um, and that's where we get the 10 lost tribes. It's or even called today the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Um, they're not erased from history. God knows where they are because in the book of Revelation with end time prophecies, the 10 tribes have a role to play. And it's really interesting if you haven't followed this kind of thing, but there is a strong scientific endeavor going on right now trying to find people who are from these tribes, and they're using DNA. There's been a couple of books now published on this just in the last couple of years. People are trying to find the 10 tribes, and they're trying to use uh, the human genome to find it. And they are finding things like this. So they are going to come back, yeah but here let me show you a little bit about these kings of the Assyrians now here is a list of basically their their big kings that they had starting at 883 bc when they first that was like the first king of the united kingdom of Assyria and ending um, with uh, Ashurbanipal the last one in 627 bc so you can see there's about a 200 year span here of time and during this time you have different kings now I'm showing you the time frame of when Jonah lived between 793-753 B.C. Now, if you put this into this play here with these kings, I put a check mark by some of these because we don't know exactly when, during the reign of King Jeroboam II, that this whole story takes place. It's somewhere in there. So it could have been any one of these four kings that you see in this time frame. Um, most, Most Bible scholars believe it was Asherdan the third, it's 772 to 755. That one seems to have the strongest uh, case being made for it, that he was the king that's mentioned in the book of Jonah. But it never mentions a name, so we're not known for sure. But this is the one that most Bible scholars believe that Jonah was at this time. Now, Nineveh would fall eventually in 612 B.C. The Babylonians would conquer it. Uh, they would rise up and get rid of him. Um, but... Here are the different kings. There are some of these mentioned in the Bible. Tiglath-Pileser the third, he is mentioned in the Bible. He comes up and he conquers the, the kingdom of Israel, the Samaria. He conquers that. He's the guy who does this. And right behind him is Shalmanzer, the, the fifth. He comes up. Sargon II is also mentioned. These three are actually mentioned right in the Old Testament histories. And then, of course, there is Sennacherib who comes up during the time of Hezekiah and conquers everything except Jerusalem. Um, and he was the, the greatest, I put the little asterisk here, he was the greatest. That, that's, this is when the kingdom of Assyria was at its greatest boundaries. He took it to its uh, biggest height. Um, before him, it would have been like, you know, Tiglath-Pileser did a great job at this, and so did Sargon II, but he had these weak kings in here. And this is where it gets interesting. In this time frame that's going on, certain things historians have found out happened to Nineveh but I can't tell you yet, it'll burst the balloon. I gotta build it up. Hey, God's dramatic, I can be dramatic too. <laughs> so that's when it happens. Now we know there are many things written about the Assyrians, they wrote about themselves. This is a, a stela, uh, or stele as they, they sometimes call them. It's a, just a big, this thing's about you know seven feet tall. And this one is by, all about the life of Tiglath-Pileser III, who came just after Jonah. Um, and this is in the Israel Museum, Is that you? No, That's Dara. Yeah. That's Dara. But um, I was trying to figure out who that was. But this large pillar here has writing all through it. Also, they wrote on these things, and um, they talk about their life and what the accomplishments were. They did these kind of things. Um, And here is an image also. This is from Nineveh. This panel here was taken from Nineveh in a palace there, Sennacherib's palace. This is King Sennacherib sitting here. Um, and people are bringing him um, awards you can see uh, from Battleseeds 1. There's people who are bowing down um, to worship him and stuff. There's all sorts of decorations and stuff that they had. The Assyrians recorded everything in pictures. They were fascinated with pictures. You walk into the palace, there's pictures everywhere of what their accomplishments were. Um, Sennacherib even has what's called the Sennacherib Prism. There are three of these in existence. One is in Chicago um, at the Oriental Museum. One is in I believe, in London, and there is one in Israel. This is the one from Israel that I photographed here, and it has all about Sennacherib's battles when he went out to conquer the world. It's all recorded here. We'll um, talk about him a little bit later on. But let me quote you some things from who the Assyrians were. Um, This is from Asher, yeah, these names. Asher Nasirpal, who was one of these during the time, like right around just before Jonah. And this is from a um a, a, stelle, a prison thing that was written, uh, he had written about what he had done in conquering different cities. So this is quoted right off this. This is what it says. And this will give you an idea of who these people were. I filleted as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within a pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I filleted many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Boy, do these people rent themselves out for kids' parties. I mean, what? These guys are evil. I'm telling you, they're really bad. Nerd saying filleting, they skinned people alive. They, they peeled your skin off is what it was. Uh, continuing a little bit later on, he talks about this. I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives from them, and defeated in battle on the plain 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool, and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountains, swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built therewith a tower before their city, I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Getting an idea what these people are like? He continues. In strife and in conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with a sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Wow. And here are some images. These are photographs I took here. Um, This is from one of the panels. This is from Sennacherib's uh, throne, his actual throne room. Um, These are people being impaled. The Assyrians are the ones who invented crucifixion. We often associate crucifixion with Romans. Crucifixion started with the Assyrians. They didn't do it the same way as the Romans. These people are being crucified, They did it, basically, a couple of different ways. Uh, You can see, here's two Assyrian soldiers. They're taking a pole here. These these are two heads, by the way, down here. But they're taking poles. These are dead people. They're taking the dead people, and they're putting um, poles up underneath the ribcage and lifting them up. Do you remember in the Book of Esther? There's Mordecai and Hanan. Hanan does not like the Jew Mordecai. And so he has got a plan to kill Mordecai. And if you recall, it says to hang him on a 75-foot gallows. That is not hanging like a conventional thing with the neck. That's written during the Persians. The Persians took the Assyrian method of execution, and it was a 75-foot pole he was going to impale him on. That's what that is talking about. Nothing about putting a rope around his neck and hanging him. That's what is mentioned in the book of Esther. Now, they would do this to dead people to display the bodies, but they also did it to live people. Now, they would not stick a live person with a pole inside, you know, underneath the ribcage. You'd puncture the diaphragm muscle. You'd puncture lungs and stuff. The person's gonna bleed out, gonna die really quick. They'll suffocate, etc. cetera. Um, what they did, this was the first crucifixion, live crucifixions. They would strip you naked. These people are hanging there are naked. They would strip you naked, lay you down, and they would take about a four-inch diameter pole, um, sharpen one end, and hammer that up your bottom. And then they would lift you up, and you would be alive for a day or a couple of days like that. That was the first crucifixion. The Babylonians, when Nebuchadnezzar comes by later on, he picks this up, too, and he says, wow, this is a great thing to do to people. I can really get people to obey me when I do this. When Alexander the Great, well, then the Persians took it. We see that in the book of Esther. Then when Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire in 330 B.C., as he comes along, when he gets to Tyre, which is present-day Lebanon, he goes there. The people wouldn't submit to him. He ends up having to conquer their key city of, of Tyre, and he then took... He thought, wow, this is a really cool thing, because the Greeks didn't have this. Alexander noticed this with the Persians, and he thought, wow, this is a cool way to treat people who disobey me. So Alexander took it. It became then adopted by the Greeks. Then the Romans, which took a lot of the Greek culture, pulled it into theirs. They thought, wow, this is a great way. And the Romans took it to an art form of nailing a person to a cross. That was Roman. But crucifixion itself, the Assyrians were the inventors. Wow. (laughs) Here are people being laid down, and they're gonna fillet them. Again, this is right off of a a, uh, panel on the the wall in Sennacherib's um, palace. Could you imagine going into the palace and going to see the king, and you're passing all these things? (laughs) That was part of the plan. These are four images I took out of Biblical Archaeology Review, showing um, sort of gruesome, but there's worse I could have shown. But I want you to understand who Jonah is going to see and who God is telling him to. Here they are filleting. People are pulling out tongues. They're, this guy is actually being filleted. That one is too. This one, they're cutting off his head. Here, there's an archer using heads stuck on poles for target practice. According to writings, they tried to, uh, to shoot out the eyes to, for accuracy. So they did this. But I want you to notice something too here. Um, well, well, we'll go down. This picture here, again, you can see a person who is impaled. Um This person is dead. If you note, the hands and the feet are cut off. Here is a person cutting off the hand of this victim. Um, Actually, this picture here, these are Jews. These are people from Lachish. Um, The first picture I showed you, too, that that last one of people being impaled, they were from the city of Lachish, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, But I want you to notice, this is the city of Nineveh. Notice the heads on display on the walls. And we also know from the Assyrians, their own writings, they filleted people and they covered the walls with human skin. Sort of like what the Nazis did with some Jews. But they did, they covered the wall of their city with this. And as you read, uh, as we read here, what they often did too is they cut off the heads and they decorated trees with them. We put on ornaments for our Christmas trees, they used human heads. So you walked into Nineveh, this was a gruesome place to go. Um, This picture here is, Again, being people who are beheaded and stuff like that. So it um, gives you an idea of who these people were like. And like I say, if you go into the palace, this is uh, an artist's rendering of what this Place looked like, the palace of the Assyrian king. Um, You can see a person standing here to give you a size thing, but there's panels along the walls. And so you would go down this long wall to go into the king's chamber, uh, the throne room, but you're passing these panels of what I just showed you as you walk down there. So as you're walking down there, you have those images you're looking at, like, whoa. And you're going down to the king who is the one who is in charge of all of this. That's who the Assyrians. That's who God told Jonah, Jonah, my prophet, my beloved prophet, I have a job for you. I want you to go and give a message. Oh, yes, Lord, where would you send me? You send me, I'll go. I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to kill them. Do you understand now why Jonah fled? It wasn't that many times we just think, well, he was disobeying God there's a reason he disobeyed God. Um, It's not a good reason, but he was probably scared witless and tried, because we know he went the opposite direction. Next lesson, I'll show you where Tarshish is and what happens in the next part, these next verses after this. But this gives you, what I want to show you tonight is basically to give you a, because we're about out of time here, to give you an idea of who these people were that Jonah was supposed to go to and tell this message. I mean, could you imagine being told something like this? You're going to have to travel hundreds, away from, hundreds of miles from home. You're going to be by yourself, and you're going to go into the heart of this city, start jumping up and down, preaching uh, from a soapbox, telling him God's going to destroy them. What do you think they're going to do to you? Jonah knew what these people were capable of. And I'm not trying to excuse Jonah. Please don't think I'm trying to make an excuse for disobeying God. I am not. I'm trying to help you to see, though, what's going on in his mind and why he was afraid. That's what it's all about. So, with that, that's as far as we're going to get tonight, because like I say, we're out of time already. Man, that went fast. Holy cow. Have I really been speaking over 45 minutes? My wife is saying, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, that's the end of this one. uh, Let's pray, then uh, we'll just... Uh, What we do here then, we eat treats, we just sort of socialize for a while and just enjoy and uh, just take some time and we'll do that. Father, we thank you so much. I thank you for every person who's come here tonight and I just ask that you just, again, help us to see things as we explore your word. Lord, we're not making excuses for Jonah, but we are becoming aware of what it was like at that time period with what you asked him to do. And this is a phenomenal book, it is a book of salvation, and as we go through this, uh, Lord, I pray that you use me to, to make it very clear and, and very easy to understand how this book actually relates, and it is a book of salvation. So please uh, keep everybody safe. We thank you for the treats we have here tonight. Bless those to the nourishment of our body also. And God bless all who came in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
0: hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.